This is Porch Tales, a Humanities DC podcast where we hear the stories of those who shape the history and culture of our nation's capital. This is Katie Davis. Welcome to Lanier, the block that raised me. I take the shortcut by the firehouse all the time. I've been doing it since I was 10 years old. Into the alley, past the garages built for Model T cars, then back out of the alley, and there was a big front porch, John's porch. The roof shaded an old metal porch chair and a plastic one. Maybe there was more, but I couldn't see in. It was so dim. It was part refuge, part watchtower. John and I lived a half block from each other, and all I ever saw were John's shoulders, like tubas looming over the porch railing. I came to know more about John later, when I was in my mid-30s, after I left my reporting job. I was outside all the time, leading a free summer camp for neighborhood kids. And I learned that sitting on the porch was John's job, one he created for himself. This is his friend Tina, who grew up across the street from John. Nobody could do nothing that he didn't know about. And if something should happen, he would be the first one there to, like, protect me or whatever. He was always there for me. He was my best friend. Tina says there was a daily drill. They started on John's porch and sat for a while. Then they went across to Tina's porch and sat there, and then up to the park and eventually back to John's porch. That was basically the routine, park to the porch, porch to the park. <laughs> that was basically it. Uh, sitting there on my porch, and okay. th- those are the two main porches. Tina said they sat and talked all day about the neighborhood and about their lives. He always told me about things that happened in his past that I could relate to. I had a... Uh, at one time, I had, like, a boyfriend that was, like, a fatal attraction. He would tell me, you need to let him go because he's not a good person for you, and he'll end up hurting you. And at that time, I didn't listen to him, but eventually I started to see what he was talking about. And and it was true. I had to let him go because it was kind of crazy. It, it was bad for my health to be with that person. John Holloway was, like, the mayor of Adams Morgan. And, he, and everybody knew him. If they didn't, they would know him in a short time. He was a great person. He was really nice. So popular with all the neighbors and always willing to lend a hand or whatever need advice or anything. He was always there to give you good advice all the time. He was, he was great. He's always um, there to protect the kids, to watch out. He, he, he was just like a, a, the monitor, the street monitor or whatever. He was always looking and and investigating and and making sure everything is right, copacetic all the time. He's always, like, right there. He was just there. And, like, how does that happen? How come one person becomes, like, the monitor? You know, why why him? Very outspoken. He never hesitated to tell you how he felt about anything. He never hesitated about that. And if he saw something that 
didn't look right, he would make sure and um, take care of it. Or um, he just made sure everything was safe for everybody around. He was always like the protector. I seen a couple fighting, and then, then these other guys came and jumped on the guy and um, started to pull out knives. And he kind of like didn't really get in between it, but told him, don't do that, don't do it here. And, you know, tried to stop it. And they happened to just leave just because of his presence. He, he kind of scared them. I told an old friend that I was talking to people about John, and he said, I know another side of that story. You should come talk to me. So I did. Bobby grew up a block from John. I used to hate John. I was really afraid of John. John was older than me. He was about my brother's age. He was, uh, I think, like 16 when I was 12. And John used to slap me around. John used to take my money. And that was taboo to have anyone do that to you in your neighborhood. Um, and he was the one person that I used to dread seeing because he was racial, he hated whitey, and I was whitey. And, you know, 99% of the African-Americans in the community seemed to either accept or like me, or they, they seemed to. But John was just adamant about hating my white ass, you know? And uh, so I used to see him just go the other way, and now and then I couldn't avoid him, and he'd embarrass me, and and because John, John was a scary guy, you know, he was, he was angry, real angry, and this was during right after the riots, you know, in D.C., and there was big racial tension in the city. So um, John never was into the sports much. John was more into drinking some beer and smoking some reefer and uh, and terrorizing people and selling pot and selling firecrackers around the 4th of July. And uh, even when I got to the point when I was like 15, 16 years old, when I started to develop more physically and I got less afraid of people and became a bit of a thug, a bit of a hood myself, he was like still to me the ultimate hood, you know? And he was the type of guy that didn't have to leave his step. People walk by and he'd shake them down, you know? Uh, but strangest thing happened, you know, I, I, I think I was about 17 and we were down at my buddy's house on um, Ontario Road at a party. I don't know how it started, but he punched me in my, and he broke my nose right inside the guy's apartment. And um, so people were looking and I knew I had to fight him back. And a buddy of mine, Earl, and his uncle, Kuda, <laughs> wild names around here. They just kept saying, fight him, Bobby, fight him. You can beat him, Bobby. And they pushed me from behind into him. And when they pushed me, I just swung and I hit him. And he stopped fighting for a few seconds. And when he stopped fighting, I started fighting. And, it, that, and then he started fighting and it became a legendary neighborhood fight. I mean, the kind that... um noses are broke ribs are broken and you can't really get out of bed i didn't get out of bed for a couple of days and he had to go to the hospital and yeah and it, it was a big turning point in my life it was <laughs> so okay so time passes yeah time passes john and i become friends who who would have thunk it huh? who would have thunk that <laughs> john and i became good buddies you know uh 
and the neighborhood also started changing and more white families moved on John Street and John to my surprise became less bigoted you know I think John's thing was what it became was if he sniffed out one hint of prejudice from a white person he hated them so I you know I think gradually John learned to give people a chance you know John learned to um, give his neighbors a chance and John made made some white friends and um, so um, you know gradually we became friends and we started drinking our beers together and and just talking about our families and and if one of us was overdoing the party scene a little too much, we'd sort of tell the other one, you know? Is that what you said when you said you knew another side of them? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's something that this community, I, I believe, helped him develop, mm-hmm. you know? Um, because he was a hateful, hateful man mm-hmm. as a young, well, as a teenager. And he just, he was very angry and... and and to see the guy that he became was like night and day. He uh, he was just he just mellowed, you know. Well, it's interesting because you know I know him and I know him more as you described him sitting on his porch and shaking people down. <laughs> I know him more sitting on his porch, hanging out, but keeping an eye out too, specifically. Yeah, he uh, you know. This neighborhood didn't have a lot of positive role models. It didn't. Um, and John had a, a sense of community. And he had a sense of community that I didn't have. John had it. And he had it, I think, partly because he had his family was intact. And he, they lived on the same street for so many years. And... Uh, when he, I think over the years, John realized that, you know, everybody's not out to get him and he don't have to be the bully. And, and John started caring more about what went on on his street, what kids were going down the road that he went down. And he would pull them aside and, and give them big time tough love. He'd tell them he's going to kick their little stupid ass if, if he catches them breaking so-and-so's window. And don't you know what can happen to you if you get caught stealing out of the store around the corner and telling young girls, why are you hanging out with these idiots who all all they want to do is take you home and don't care nothing about you once you're pregnant? And John, he started to care. Maybe he always cared. I'm not, who am I to judge? Who who am I to to say whether he always cared or not? But I think he, he learned to show it. And he, you know, stuff that, people in the community would tolerate he wouldn't he wasn't afraid you know he but he would he took a much larger stand than I did he did he was a lot more secure in who he was than I was so he became like the mayor you know he did he became sort of like the mayor in this in this neighborhood my buddy (laughs) my buddy
Around the mid-1990s, Margaret and Jeffrey moved in next to John's house, and their porches were squeezed close like stools in a diner. If we were out on the porch, because we get up really early, we would, in the summer months, we'll sit out there with our coffee, and we would see him come out, like, clearly having just woken up, you know, yawning and stretching. And then, I mean, he would sit there in the evenings, well into the, not the late night, but, you know, often would have people over kind of sitting on the porch with him in the evening. So that was kind of like his living room in a way. I mean, in the, in the warm months. Yeah, it was a social, it was a gathering place. Yeah. yeah, and I really got to know him when I was, when I sat out here for two months and scraped the bay window oh, yeah. of all the paint off. And he would just sit there and say, you're putting a lot of work on that. And he was right. Later on, I found out that he was on disability because of some heart issues. But uh, I, I like to sit on the porch, but, you know, I can't see doing it for 16 hours a day. I, see, I don't I have a love hate relationship with the porch because I kind of don't like that it's not private and that, you know, I don't know, that pe- everybody walks by is sort of looking at you and stuff. I think that's what Jeffrey is attracted to about the porch. So. Anyway, like in the summer months, Jeff would sit out there at night sometimes and, and chat, and I would be more likely to, you know, come inside after a little while. And in fact, we're thinking of getting a, a deck built in the back that'll probably be my porch, so I can sit out there alone, and Jeff will be on the front. And you see lots in on the porch. That was the thing with John, is that he he was sort of like the the commentator of what was going on. So... If somebody was trying to double parallel park and they couldn't get in the spot very well, I mean, Jeffrey was right up there with him in terms of criticizing the person's parking job, but John was kind of like the, the, you know, the one who would make the proclamation. Or like one time there was just this crazy man who came and was like trying to get money for mills or something. And, but anyway, the guy started walking back over towards our house and, and John's house. And John, you know, like I remember looking at him and he just stood up. It was like he was defending his territory. He stood at the entryway to the porch and basically said, you know, you take your stuff and you get out of here and like kind of ran the guy out, you know, and then like a car came and the guy was trying to like stop the car in the middle of the road. I mean, I don't know what his deal was. Clearly he was having an episode, but John, you know, like I think got off the porch and went and just said to the guy, you know, get out of here and just kind of like chased him out. It was that feeling of, you know, where things would be taken care of. As long as John was around, he would know what was going on. And I mean, the fact that he had lived here for such a long time, that he, he knew everyone. And so he kind of knew who belonged and who didn't. I only talked to John once. I was headed to the park to watch some kids play basketball. And on that day, John nodded to me from his porch, and I smiled back. And then he said in sort of a rough voice, Why don't you do something for the kids instead of just watching them? You don't even know me, I said. Oh, I know you. I heard you left your reporter job and now you're running around with the kids. Do something for the kids. They got nothing. I ran into Bobby at the corner store and I asked him what John meant. And Bobby said, he wants you to do something big, like an all-neighborhood tournament, like how it used to be in the 70s when the park had baseball games and basketball games all the time, back when we called it Ghetto Park. 
Later, when I planned a basketball tournament in the park, I knew John was the reason, and I hired professional referees and ordered real trophies like he told me to. John came and sat courtside just in case things got out of hand, but they didn't. Across the street from John, there was a boarding house, and the owner, Mr. Mills, was John's friend. Sometimes John sat on that porch, too, and Tina says he also checked out every potential boarder. Really, Mr. Mills would ask his advice about this person. You think this is a good person to rent a room to? And he would look at him and, and say, no, I don't think he's the right person, because it would be like a lot of drug addicts wanting rooms and whatnot. And... They would not get a room if John had anything to do with it. The first time I was ever on John's porch was when I took food to his family after John died from heart failure. I sat with his sister and brothers and told him I was glad to know John, that he taught me something about the neighborhood. Tina said things on the block started to change. After he left, Mr. Mills would just take any and everybody, and it just got out of hand. People were running in and out all night, up and down, in and out. To follow that story along, um, a year ago this past New Year's Eve, when Mr. Mills, you know, got, what would you call, attacked by his tenant. Beat up, yeah. Jeff and I were taking a nap. It was New Year's Eve at like four in the afternoon. And, you know, the sun was setting, and all of a sudden... We woke up from our nap and heard screaming and then sirens. We could see the lights of the police cars on the roof of our bedroom. And Jeff knew right away what had happened. He said, you know, somebody attacked Mr. Mills. And we both sort of dashed out of bed. And by then there were like three or four cop cars. And they pulled Mr. Mills out, you know, and rushed him out, put him in an ambulance and stuff. But it was this weird feeling that that if... John had been around, that somehow that wouldn't have happened. Because I think John was pretty upfront with Mr. Mills about the caliber of people that Mr. Mills was renting to. And sl- and that caliber of people really changed in the, in the five-year period. But, I mean, there was basically a drug dealer that was living in the basement, and Mr. Mills seemed to know about it and not do anything or care about it. And John, I think, would not have put up with that. I mean, he, he was pretty open about that. I, it did not occur to me until several months later when I thought back on it that it, it's kind of relating to what this whole conversation is about, that you can't, in some ways, you can't know the, the meaning of someone or the impact of someone until they're not there. If you take somebody out of an equation and see what happens, and in some ways, I think I was a little surprised by it when I thought back on it, because what you were saying it, it in some ways it could have been very easy to dismiss john and and kind of dismiss his meaning particularly in a city like washington you know where people put so much stock in you know how important they are how much money they make or how how many hours of work they do you know contrast that with john who his purpose sometimes seemed to be sitting on the porch from you know sun up to sundown so it it did kind of surprise me in a in a good way, because it reminded me, you know, again, that that's, you can't judge a book by its cover and that you have to really look in inside a little bit more. We all have a purpose here. Yeah. <laughs> and who, who defines that is 
I don't know. And here, I mean, nothing has been replaced by John because, and I don't know, I kind of feel like since I'm a porch sitter that maybe the mantle's been passed to me, but I can't devote quite the time that John did. Oh, yeah, so do you find yourself yelling at the kids? Okay, cut it out, that's too much. Uh, not since I got hit in the head with a rock. <laughs> <laughs> Has anyone even halfway taken this place? No. Nope, not even halfway. Uh, one of the rumors used to be at Mr. Mills' house. One of the, uh, what was his name, Melvin thought he could, but he wasn't there long enough. You have to be a lifelong member of that block to have that type of thing. <laughs> I can't tend to think that I, I took over as the mayorette. <laughs> you know, I want to be a voice. I want to be heard. I want to be seen all the time. Yeah. Do you find yourself sometimes saying, hey, quit that mess? Oh, yeah, yeah. Especially, in, uh, you know, the young kids in the park, they be carrying on sometimes. Uh, I give them a strong advice. That's not a good thing to do. You want to do that somewhere else. You don't want to do that here. You don't want to start no commotions. This is like a, a loving community. We want to keep it that way. Keep it in your community and leave ours a happy one. And I think, you know, Margaret and I will be out front or walking down the street and see something going on and we'll just comment that you know john would never allow that to happen <laughs> yeah it's almost become sort of a figure of speech in a way this episode is Flawn Williams and the editor Art Silverman. Thanks to Herman Burney and David Schulman for the music as always. Thank you. And I'm Katie Davis. Look for the next episode coming next week. Tales is produced by Humanities DC. If you want to share your DC story, check out the link in the show notes and be sure to rate and review us wherever our podcast lives on your favorite podcast player. This season is made possible by funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities.